of the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files. This is the second installment of Season 4, one that takes a close look at some monstrous creatures from the Greek and other mythical story worlds. Today, we'll start to look at serpentine monsters from what we might call the primeval period, creatures that predate or threaten the Olympian gods and the order that they establish for themselves and for us. In this episode, we will focus on a monster that was one of Zeus's most difficult foes and a real threat to his power. This is the exceedingly monstrous creature Typhius, also called Typhon, an enormous creature, powerful, fierce, and a mixture of several threatening animal parts. In addition, we'll learn about a similar myth featuring a serpent facing off against a storm god from the Hittite world, as well as about the Hittites themselves. Since I'm not an expert on Hittite myth, we'll turn to my colleague at the University of New Hampshire, Professor Gregory McMahon, who is a Hittitologist and an Anatolian archaeologist. The Hittites are a fascinating people, or peoples, with their own mythological story world. So sit back and enjoy another episode of the Greek Myth Files. The earliest story about the serpent-like creature Typhius comes from the poet Hesiod in his genealogical poem about creation, the Theogony. One of the chief aims of Hesiod's poem is, in addition to giving an account of creation, to celebrate the emergence of Zeus as the triumphant king of the gods, the god I like to call the forever god since he secures power once and for all. After he dispatches his father and the earlier generations of Titans, Gaia, the earth, mates with Tartarus, the pit of the underworld, and gives birth to her last son, according to Hesiod, Typhius, who would be the last monstrous threat, again for Hesiod, to Zeus's reign. Let's listen to Hesiod's description of the monster. Typhius, a god whose hands were like engines of war, whose feet never gave out, from whose shoulders grew the hundred heads of a frightful dragon flickering dusky tongues, and hollow eye sockets in the eerie head sent out fiery rays, and each head burned with flame as it glared. And there were voices in each of these frightful heads, a phantasmagoria of unspeakable sounds, sometimes things the gods could understand, sometimes like a bellowing and snorting bull, or the great vocal roar of a lion, or like puppies yapping, an uncanny voice, or whistling, hissing through the long ridges and hills. And that day would have been beyond hope of help. And Typhius would have ruled over immortals and humans, had the father of both not been quick to notice. It is not always Gaia that gives birth to Typhius. Other accounts name Hera, wife of Zeus, who was trying to give back at her husband for giving birth to Athena all by himself. But most versions tell us that Gaia purposefully gave birth to the monster in anger at Zeus, presumably for having defeated or killed her own offspring, whether it was the Titans or, in a later version we'll get to in a second, the Giants. At any rate, the account of Hesiod offers one description of the monster, with a hundred dragon heads, hissing and screeching foully. 
In other versions, Typhius is human-like down to the waist, after which he turns into a series of serpent's coils. This is how Apollodorus describes Typhon, which is just another word for Typhius, whom Gaia had borne in anger for Zeus's defeating the giants, her other children. He had a form that was a mix of man and beast. He outdid in size and strength everything that Gaia had ever produced previous, and as far as the things he was, he was man-shaped, and of such immense size that he was taller than the very mountains, and his head often touched the stars. One of his hands stretched out to the west, and one to the east, and from them stood out a hundred dragon heads. From the thighs down he had gigantic viper coils that, when stretched out, reached as far as the very top of his head and produced a great hissing. His whole body was covered in wings, his coarse hair was whipped away from his head and chin by the very winds, and fire flashed from his eyes. Here, we see not just a formidable foe, but one that is cosmically huge and menacing. While there are some similarities in the accounts, Apollodorus stresses the worldwide threat that Typhius poses. Ancient vases attempt to show this monster in various ways, too, and we have put on our website, manto-myth.org gmf, two vases that illustrate Typhius, including one very famous vase where Zeus confronts the monster with his thunderbolt. One thing that has occurred to me as I've been researching monsters in antiquity is that many depictions diverge in detail. Even so, the general principle holds true. Zeus and the order he represents is threatened by an awesome opponent. And the more awesome the threat is, the more glorious Zeus's victory becomes. And in Hesiod, Zeus is victorious. Zeus thundered hard, and the earth around rumbled horribly. And wide heaven above, the sea, the ocean, and underground Tartarus? When Zeus' temper had peaked, he seized his weapons, searing bolts of thunder and lightning. And as he leapt from Olympus, he struck. He burned all of the eerie heads of that frightful monster. And when he had beaten it down, he whipped it until it reeled off, maimed, and the vast earth groaned. And in anger... Zeus hurled him into Tartarus pit. The passage you just heard leaves out some of the battle description, which was monumental, raging heat from both combatants, firestorms, tidal waves, and a terrifying clamor. It was so bad that Hades, god of the underworld, and the titans locked in Tartarus trembled as the epic battle raged above. But Zeus emerges triumphant with relative ease. So we have a triumphant god, Zeus, defeating one of the most terrifying and threatening monsters ever created to ensure an orderly universe. Of course, Zeus would easily conquer such a being, right? Well, not so fast. In one version, that of Apollodorus, we find that Zeus actually loses in his confrontation with Typhon. When the gods saw Typhius attacking heaven, they took refuge in Egypt and, being pursued, changed their forms into that of animals. But Father Zeus threw thunderbolts when Typhon was far off and struck him with an adamantine sickle when he came close. Zeus pursued him as he fled all the way to Mount Cassius, which looks over Syria. There, Zeus saw that Typhon was seriously wounded and engaged him hand to hand. 
But Typhon wrapped his coils around Zeus and got him in a hold. He stripped Zeus of the sickle and cut out the sinews of his hands and feet. Lifting Zeus onto his shoulders, he carried him across the sea to Cilicia and hid him in the Corician cave. He hid the sinews in a bearskin and stored them there, and he set the dragoness Delphine as his guard. This is a desperate situation, one that threatens the order of the universe. Zeus, immobilized, is kept under guard by another serpentine monster, Delphine. But fortunately, other gods took notice and acted. Hermes and another god, Aegipon, stole into where Zeus was being kept prisoner, and they got the sinews and restored Zeus's strength. He then flew down from heaven in a chariot and hurled thunderbolts at Typhon, who fled. The Moirai, the fates, tricked Typhon into eating human food and further weakened him. Eventually, Zeus caught up to Typhon in Sicily and threw a mountain over top of him, creating Mount Etna. And Apollodorus adds the fact that the eruptions from that mountain are from the thunderbolts Zeus hurled at Typhon. This strange story of Zeus's defeat in a land to the east, Syria and Cilicia, brings us into the orbit of the mythical stories of another culture, the Hittites, who forged one of the earliest empires in the ancient world in central Anatolia, basically modern-day Turkey. The Hittites told of a similar battle between their storm god and Iluyanka, a monstrous serpent. And we discovered a tablet written in cuneiform, the Hittites' writing system, that preserved the story in two different versions. The myth, it seems, was told during the Peruli festival, which was held in spring and probably had something to do with the agricultural cycle. Since these Hittite stories predate the earliest Greek story by several hundred years, the question is this. Did the Greeks get this story from the Hittites or another culture that told a similar story? Or was it the Greeks' own? But first, as always, we must listen to what the actual Hittite stories say. In the following translations, the translator has opted to translate Iluyanka as serpent and not Iluyanka with a capital I, as if it were a singular proper noun. When the storm god and the serpent fought each other in Kiskalusha, the serpent defeated the storm god. Then the storm god invoked the other gods, Come together to me! And Inara prepared a feast. At this point, Inara, the huntress goddess, seeks a human as an ally, one named Hupashia, who agrees on the condition that she sleep with him. He is concealed in the ambush, and the goddess entices the serpent and his offspring up for a fantastic feast. Then, The serpent and his offspring came up, and they ate and drank. They drank up every vessel to the point they got drunk. They did not want to go back down into their hole again. Hupashia came and tied up the serpent with a rope. The storm god came and killed the serpent, and the gods were with him. This version is rather straightforward. The storm god is defeated, and with the help of other gods, engineers a plan to gain revenge, which he does through trickery. But there is a second, far more elaborate version in which the storm god seems to be incapacitated like Zeus. It's written on the exact same tablet as the other version, but adds a lot more detail. First, the serpent defeated the storm god and took his heart and his eyes. And the storm god feared him. So he took as his wife the daughter of a poor man and sired a son. When the son grew up, he took the daughter of the serpent as his wife. The storm god repeatedly instructed his son, When you go to the house of your wife, demand from them my heart 
and my eyes as a bride price. So when he went, he demanded from them the heart, and they gave it to him. After that, he demanded the eyes, and they gave those to him as well. He brought them to his father, and the storm god took back his lost heart and eyes. When he was again sound in body as before, he went once more to the sea to do battle. When he gave him battle, and he at last began to defeat the serpent, the storm god's son was with the serpent and called up to his father in the sky, Include me with them! Have no pity on me! And so the storm god killed both the serpent and his own son. At this point, the text is broken, so we're not exactly sure what happens at that moment. But it's clear that in both versions, the storm god emerges victorious and restores order. But the detail that the serpent, Iluyanka, disabled the storm god has led scholars of Greek myth to wonder, is the version preserved by Apollodorus a faint vestige of this earlier Hittite myth? As usual, even though there are similar elements in both cultures, we will likely never be able to tease out exactly how, or even if, these Near Eastern elements were adopted and recast into a purely Greek context. We can be pretty sure that the Greeks were exposed to a lot of stories from the Near East, but the exact process of adoption and modification continued to elude us. But to help us understand the Hittite stories in their original context, we have the pleasure to welcome to the podcast an expert on the Hittites, and our interview with him will occupy the next segments of this podcast. really excited to introduce my colleague at the University of New Hampshire, Gregory McMahon. Greg, thanks for being on the show today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what your scholarship looks like? I went to grad school initially for ancient history, and then I went to the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute and decided I wanted to do a PhD in Hittite philology. Um, for a variety of reasons, and I was not sorry. It was a wonderful thing to do. Um, I ended up writing a dissertation on Hittite cultic texts, and along the way I had the opportunity to learn Turkish and to have a Fulbright in Turkey in the mid-80s, so that when I graduated and came to UNH in 1988, I had the opportunity to teach ancient history, but also very quickly after I published my dissertation uh, as a book, had the opportunity to work in Turkey as an archaeologist, so I have kind of pursued parallel tracks in both philology and archaeology since then. I've gotten interested in Turkish um, philology as well. So I've had kind of three different things that I've worked on over the years, but consistently, of course, during all that time, I've also been teaching about the ancient world, Greek, Roman, and ancient Near East. That's great. So so you are a Hittitologist yes, uh, by training. Yes. So that, asked, you know, that, that, that prompts the first question, which is, who are the Hittites? Can you tell us a little bit about them? They are, um, first of all, an interesting kind of mix of people. They are, their language is the oldest attested Indo-European language. It, once you start looking at it, it's clearly Indo-European and related to Greek and Latin. Um, who settled in what's now central Turkey, that is central Anatolia, sometime probably around 1800 BCE, they, at the end of the Middle Bronze Age. And they are the quintessential late Bronze Age major civilization, state, and empire of central Anatolia. Um, they borrowed their writing system from the Babylonians, so they use a, a kind of cuneiform that's distinctively Babylonian. 
again, probably in the Old Babylonian periods. And there are thousands of texts that they left us initially in the archives at Hattusha, their capital, which is uh, more or less exactly in the middle of Turkey. Um, and in the more recent couple of decades, several other archives have been discovered. That's actually fairly recent. Um, texts in Akkadian, which is the language of Mesopotamia. Texts in Hittite itself. Um, texts in Hurrian, which is a, a completely unrelated language of northern Syria and southern Anatolia. They are probably a mix of Indo-European and initial Anatolian and Hurrian and Luvian people who use Hittite as an official language were probably actually very mixed culturally. Mm. Um, and they, perhaps the thing they contributed most to the late Bronze Age Anatolian was Indo-European aggression. They are the first people we can recognize, uh, in Anatolia anyway, to organize an empire, to unify, if I may use that euphemism, um, the area of central Anatolia into a small empire which over the over time grew quite a bit and probably ended about 1200 BCE mm -hmm. or so with some kind of catastrophic destruction of their capital at Hattusha. So they are in some ways the uh, the most important late Bronze Age people or most recognizable mm -hmm. of uh, Anatolia. So you use this term Anatolia a lot and for our listeners can you just define Anatolia? I mean you wrote the book uh, <laughs> the Oxford Handbook to Ancient Anatolia. <laughs> yes. So can you tell us what Anatolia is and maybe um, Think about how that fits into the matrix of, say, the Greek world, which is what our podcast is on, yes. but also the Near East. So Anatolia is one of four names that, that I know of, at least, that have been there, that have been used over the last 4,000 years for the area that's now Turkey. So there's a pretty mm -hmm. obvious landmass, which is definable by uh, borders of mountains or oceans, that we consider uh, Asian Turkey. Um, the oldest name for it is Hatti, and that name comes from these early Hittite texts, mm -hmm. which is where we get the name Hittites, in fact. Um, then the Greeks called it Anatolia, I think means the area east of here or something mm -hmm. like that. The Romans then actually taking a name of one Hittite city, Oshawa, probably, um, called it Little Asia or Asia Minor. And then, of course, it's not Turkey until mm -hmm. the Turks arrive. And so when I ask my students when it became Turkey, uh, the two answers I'm most likely to get are either 1071. Battle of Manzikert, where the Turks first entered into Anatolia, or 1923, when the Republic of Turkey was founded. Mm. So it's obviously not Turkey until the Turks get there, and so we call it Hatti for the Hittite period, and Anatolia for, really for the Iron Age or, or Greek period, and Asia Minor, and when I'm talking about Roman history. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that Anatolia is at a pretty important crossroads in many <laughs> ways from, say, what we think of as the, the Western uh, area that we know as Greece and other parts of Europe as well as the Near East. I mean, is it a kind of a mixing bowl in some ways or is it more isolated? Very much it is clearly crossroads and I didn't really answer the, your question about <laughs> relation in ancient Near East and Greece. It really is kind of between the two. Um, certainly we consider late early bronze, late bronze Anatolia to be part of the ancient Near East and that's why archaeology and philology of that area is included in the Oriental Institute where I went to grad school. Um, it obviously is very close to Greece because the Aegean Sea is not that large and by the late Bronze Age, Greeks were certainly uh, sailing across. Um, and it of course is connected by land to Syria, Mesopotamia and Iran really. Mm -hmm. um, modern Turkey really has a border with all three of those countries and so it is very much a part of the Near East but it's on the edge of it. It's mm -hmm. kind of on the northwestern edge I guess you'd say of the ancient Near East. And of course as you know the Greeks probably starting at the collapse of the late Bronze Age, began migrating to Anatolia, and then of course colonizing it. Um, Black Sea coast for, for grain and Byzantium, and the most important colony that controls the Bosphorus, and 
hugely important Greek cities like Ephesus or Miletos or Sardis, um, some of which may have been originally late bronze, even Hittite cities, but it were definitely taken over or, or started by Greeks. Mm. So even today in terms of tourism, right, Turkey probably has more well-preserved Greek cities than Greece. I want to get back ultimately to the question of Near Eastern or Hittite influence on Greek mythology, which is the topic of the, of the podcast. Fair enough. But I think we need to talk about um, cuneiform for our <laughs> listeners to kind of explain what it is, what the history is, and in many ways, as a practicing Hittitologist, what challenges are there to reading Hittite? So cuneiform is obviously a Latin word and made up. Again, all words are made up, but this is a recently made up word, 19th century meaning wedge-shaped, because um, when people began working on it in the 19th century, Europeans, um, most obvious thing about it was that all the symbols are made with wedges, and that's just a function of the fact that um, at some point, this early writing system, which I'll talk about origins more in a second, was all pictographic, but at some point, pretty early on, the, the inventors of this system began making the symbols abstract, so it's easier to do and faster, and so the wedges are formed by pushing the, the corner of a square in cross-section stylus into clay, and therefore it's just easy to make wedges, and the combinations of wedges make up all the symbols. It goes back at a little more than 5,000 years. It probably is the oldest writing system ever anywhere in the world, um, invented by the Sumerians, who lived in what's now southern Iraq or southern Mesopotamia. Originally probably for accounting purposes, but very quickly people realized the potential of this. Early symbols are pictographic. Very quickly they become abstract, made with wedges. And very quickly, within a few centuries, other people, other cultures, other languages were borrowing it. The first of those are the Akkadians, who took the system. Instead of being logographic, they adapted it to being syllabic. And from that point on, the Hittites borrowed it, the Elamites borrowed it, the people of Ugarit borrowed it, the Persians borrowed it. Um, so it is a system that is originally logographic, but it becomes syllabic and logographic. There are, and when the Hittites borrowed it, you basically have a Hittite text will have three different languages embedded in it. It will have... Mm -hmm. Hittite, of course, which is the native language, but also, as abbreviations, many, many Akkadian words, just borrowed directly from Akkadian, from Mesopotamia, and also a lot of Sumerian words. Hmm. Again, used as abbreviations and written logographically with a single symbol indicating the entire word. So maybe the most difficult part of reading a Hittite text is figuring out which of the three languages any given word is going to be. And occasionally, you have to look them up in all three languages to find out what you're actually looking mm -hmm. for. Um, so again, there are about 300 symbols, so another challenge is simply learning the symbols. So as a, as a confessional moment here, I, I actually learned Hittite from uh, <laughs> Greg here. Um, and one of the things that is also important is that, as far as I know, all, all Hittite cuneiform writing um, is on clay tablets. With one exception. With one exception. There is a, when I was in grad school in the, in the 80s, I don't remember exactly when, sometime in the 80s, a bronze tablet was mm. discovered. It was uh, up on the top of Hattusha, pretty much buried, intentionally buried as far as we can tell, under, very close to the outer defensive mm. wall. It was found by Peter Neva, who was the excavator at the time. It is a treaty between the Hittite king and a sort of a vassal king in the southwest, south southern part of Turkey. Mm -hmm. And he actually thought he'd found the chisel as well in a different spot that had been used to chisel the signs. Wow. So clay works great because it's plastic and then mm -hmm. when it's wet and then of course if it's fired, it's unchangeable and it's easy to, as I said, to make these wedges mm -hmm. with a stylus. The, the bronze tablet is significantly less easy to work on and obviously it was mm -hmm. only used for extremely special things and that tablet's now in the, in the Ankara Museum. 
So getting back to that same question about um, clay tablets, it seems to me that that also is a difficulty because when destruction happens, clay tablets tend to break into pieces and you don't have they whole do. text. So they're fragmentary text. And in fact, the, the myth we're going to talk about has some cha has some challenges because of the fragmentary nature of that. So I assume that's also a, a challenge for a, uh, a hittitologist. Major challenge because these texts, of course, are, are really... The originals they have them they've not been like copied on the other media later on. In fact, they were unknown until the late 19th, early 20th century. Really, the first Hittite tablets were not found until the 1905 or so. So yes, they were buried in the ground for thousands of years. Um, the better preserved ones are typically the ones that were fired accidentally in the burning of the archives. So in the mm. destruction in which the archives burn, the wooden shelves and the wax-covered wooden tablets, which we know the Hittites used obviously burned and they actually fired those tablets but still mm -hmm. that makes them resistant to uh, melting away in the earth but it doesn't make them resistant to breaking so mm -hmm. almost probably every single tablet is more or less fragmentary at least a little bit and there are tiny little pieces and so a big part of Hittitology is looking at all the fragments in which are scattered over across three major museums and a dozen other smaller collections and seeing if you can in fact find pieces that would join even across different museums or are duplicates. So most Hittite, major Hittite texts exist in several different copies, which mm -hmm. can vary tremendously. And we don't even know how they relate to each other in terms of order of when they were written down. And there are probably many of them are copies, not originals. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, another, that's a huge challenge, which some people aren't used to. It's just they're always lacunae. Mm -hmm. And for my listeners, lacuna just means a gap in the text, exactly. which is something that all, uh, all scholars of, ancient, of the ancient <laughs> world deal with at some point. I'd like to turn now uh, to the Ilyanka myth, which is our uh, Hittite analog for a Greek myth uh, that we've been discussing in this podcast. And I wonder if you could tell us what Ilyanka means etymologically in Hittite. Um, and then I have a follow-up question on that after you give us, hopefully, a, a, a good answer. So in, in translations of this story, the word Ilyanka is oftentimes capitalized. But it really is simply the Hittite word for serpent mm -hmm. or snake. So, and he's obviously a snake. Um, but as far as we can tell, this is simply the snake. That is, it, it, a good translation would actually, instead of using the word Ilyanka, certainly could use the serpent or the mm -hmm. snake. And some translations do that. So it really is just a, a common gender noun for snake. Mm -hmm. Now, is it a big snake? I mean, you know, because we have the idea of like serpent and snake and dragon all kind of evoke different ideas. Is there something we can drill down into? Is, or is it, it just a snake? It's a snake. Oh, I think the word is a snake, but it certainly, um, the text indicates, I mean, the, the, the narrative suggests mm -hmm. that it is a large snake, mm -hmm. right? serpent or a formidable serpent of some kind mm -hmm. because of the, what it does to the storm god. Yeah. Um, is there something about evil serpents in Near Eastern mythology or culture, or is this kind of a one-off in the Hittites? I mean, obviously in many cultures there is the serpent that is some kind of foe, monster, um, devious creature that gets someone to eat, say, fruit from a, a garden somewhere. <laughs> yes. um, but is there something about the Near Eastern, um, like serpents or dragons? I don't think that's a really obvious theme. I mean, obviously the Hebrew Bible story mm -hmm. is, in fact, Near Eastern. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's the only example I can think of immediately. There are certainly monsters in the Near East, but they don't necessarily take on the form mm -hmm. of, of serpents. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think of the, uh, the Gilgamesh epic, um, one of the most formidable monsters is the bull of heaven, 
So I would say, to a certain extent, um, larger animals, either carnivorous or really aggressive herbivores like bulls, are more likely to be monsters or mixed, occasionally sort of mixed beings. Mm-hmm. Um, so both Humbaba, the guardian of the cedar forest in Gilgamesh, or the Bull of Heaven are not really, they're not serpent-like. I mean, and, and you, know, you think about monsters in general. In, in an earlier episode, we, we talked about what does it mean to be monstrous, and it seems to be something about transgression, like either the bounds of normal biology, so yes. you have like a, a half bull, half man, or you have just an oversized, excessive creature, so a dragon rather than just a snake that kind of slithers past you uh, and so on. So it seems to me that the, this Iluyanka must be an enormous snake. Um, in order for it to be the opponent of of the storm god, yes, uh, I, I think we have to assume that it is large. And of course, the cyclops seem to be more or less anthropomorphic, but they're just oversized. Right, mm-hmm. that was what makes them monstrous. So, mm-hmm. size is one way, obviously, of creating a monster. There are certainly others. You could mm-hmm. argue that the sirens, mm-hmm. who are clearly not monstrous but have used completely other tactics, are also a kind of monster, mm-hmm. a more um, sinister one in some in ways. some ways, because yeah. you don't yeah. know they're monsters. To a certain right. extent, the monsters that advertise themselves as such. Mm-hmm are less scary than the ones that you don't see coming. In, in our Hittite text, there are two versions of the story of Iluyanka, the serpent, capital S, serpent. Um, the first tells of Inara, the storm god's daughter, recruiting a mortal named Hupashia uh, to help her trick and bind Iluyanka so that the storm god can kill him. In the second, there is this elaborate scheme where the storm god marries the daughter of a poor man and fathers a son who then goes on to marry Ilyanka as the serpent's daughter and then the son demands the heart and the eyes of the storm god back as a dowry which happens restoring his full strength at which point the storm god offs both the serpent and his son what gives can you tell us a little bit about like what's going on the two different versions or how do we read this myth so as far as we can tell and some of this research or thinking was done even while I was in grad school in the 80s, there are, the Hittites seem to, are definitely Indo-Europeans and seem to have probably been nomadic for a very long time, eventually settled in central Anatolia, the result of which, among other things, seems to have been that they borrowed huge aspects of their culture once they were settled down from other people who'd been there longer, the Hattians, mm-hmm. which is kind of a made-up name to describe native Anatolians of the early Bronze Age and Middle Bronze Age, who have to have been living in Anatolia when the Hittites arrived. Mm-hmm. And they certainly were incorporated into their state at some level. And we know something of their language from uh, quotations in Hittite. Uh, Hittites borrowed some of their ritual incantations in their own religious rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then much later on, they, when they expanded south, they came into contact with the Hurrians. And so all of Hittite mythology seems to divide itself into myths sort of influenced or borrowed from the Hattians, and then much later myths borrowed from the Hurrians. And you can tell to a huge extent because the names are either in Hattic or in Hurrian, which are extremely different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, Inar, who is a kind of a goddess of the fields, becomes Inara with Hittite stem vowel. So she is appropriated, clearly, she curses both Inar and then Inara into Hittite texts. Um, so in addition, so those stories themselves seem to go back to the earliest period of Hittite control of central Anatolia, what we call the old Hittite period. But the texts themselves, the copies that we have that contain these these narratives, are all from the newer period, the, the so-called Empire period, the New Hittite period. We know that because the the sign forms we talked about this earlier have changed, and so by dating the script itself, and also looking at the language and the way it changed, it's clear that they were copied or written down in the New Hittite period. But there's enough archaic 
elements of the language to indicate that they are old Hittite originally. Mm -hmm. And we know these tablets were copied partly because they are so fragile and had to be recopied periodically. Mm -hmm. um, and so both of these quite distinct versions are on the same tablet, but that could be a function of the fact that two different texts in the new Hittite period were copied under the same tablet by a scribe, living hundreds of years after this story was originally borrowed from the Hattians. It is kind of odd that you have have two different versions, but of course in both you have the finally the result that the storm god has to triumph, which mm -hmm. is a little bit like the theogony, right? The, the the latest generation of gods has to triumph, and for New Europeans it tends to be a storm god mm -hmm. who becomes the primary deity, and the Hittites are no exception to that. And if you look at uh, uh, the rock sanctuary at Yazlakai, you can see the storm god at the head of the very long procession of gods in the pantheon who are carved into the stone. All kinds of texts indicate that in the hierarchy of Hittite gods, including the oath lists and treaties, mm -hmm. the storm god is preeminent. In fact, there are a dozen storm gods of different smaller cities, but the storm god of Hatti, the country itself, is always preeminent. So the result is the same. And the second story certainly reflects um, a, an Anatolian tradition of marriage that you can find in the Hittite laws, in which if you cannot afford a bride pride price as a potential husband, you can essentially can enter the house of your bride instead and live with your father-in-law and your bride and then they have to give you a bride price instead of you providing one and then taking the bride away and taking her to your home. So you're living with the wife instead of the husband which really only occurs when the husband cannot afford a bride price. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what's going on here of course which is why at the end the, the son says you know I have to go with my new family now and mm -hmm. you have to kill me along with my father-in-law the serpent because I've entered his house and I've accepted this gift. Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks for that explanation because I think that we oftentimes think of myth as being separated from the cultural realities that we have. But in fact, myth, in fact, reflects them Very quite much frequently. So. And this is a clear example where one version is exploiting this really important cultural phenomenon that happens through marriage. Um, whereas is. the other one seems to have a slightly different approach to the same result, which is the storm god becoming it does. king. Of, and of course, Hupashia, the, in the first version, when Inara asks Hupashia, I need your help, he more or less says, of course, you know, if I can sleep with you, then I can, I will be willing to help you, and he's the one who ends up binding the serpent. But you remember that at the end of that first version, she tells him, don't look out the window, because you'll mm -hmm. see your old family, and mm -hmm. you'll, you'll, you'll want them, and you'll want to go back. And we don't know exactly what happens to him. Because it's, the tablet's broken. The tablet's broken. <laughs> we have another one of these big breaks, and so we don't know whether he survived the experience of having Inara become irritated with him mm -hmm. for missing his former family. Yeah. Um, but in either case, again, as you say, the result is the same. And all these old Hittite texts, all these old Hittite mytholo mythological texts, as opposed to the newer ones, are inextricably linked to some sort of magical ritual or religious festival. Mm -hmm. And the Hittites distinguish between festivals, which are state-sponsored religious sort of celebrations that involve sacrifices and singing, various things, and rituals, which is a different Sumerian word which they used, which is for what we would call magic. Mm -hmm. So some of the other texts really have to do with attraction magic, right? Calling gods back to the Hittite homeland. This one is associated with the Peruli festival, which is almost certainly celebrated in the spring and designed to ensure that in fact spring comes and that all the fertility we expect will in fact ensue. And of course central Anatolia is was then and is now kind of the breadbasket other than Egypt of the Middle East. And it is um, where I work in central Turkey, which is very close, to, right in the middle of the Hittite homeland. It's um, an extremely important agricultural region, mostly for growing grain, wheat and barley especially. And so this is absolutely essential for the Hittites as an agricultural economy. Mm. 
to celebrate this festival. The, the myth seems to explain why they celebrate the festival. And the serpent overcoming the storm god seems to s explain why fertility has sort of decreased and then the storm god needs to bring it back. And it is true, of course, that most of the rains in central Anatolia come in the spring. Mm. And I can work for two months in Turkey in Ju June and July and August, anywhere in there, and it never rained. Mm. I've only seen it rain three or four times in 25 years of working there. Oh. In the summer, well, if you come early enough in June, it's still green because the rains have just stopped. Mm. It is also true, of course, that most agricultural economies tend either to have a, an earth fertility mother goddess or a storm god, or possibly both. Indo-Europeans, from what I can tell, tend to favor having a storm god as their chief deity. Mm. And to a huge extent, um, agriculture in central Anatolia is still dependent on a lot of snow in the winter, so that the wheat, which is under the ground, planted in October, can in fact germinate, and then of course the rains that you need. But also, equally important, we don't think about this, no rain in July, because that's when you have to harvest the wheat. And if you get rain in July, you can't harvest your, and your, your whole economy collapses. Mm -hmm. So you only need the storm god, you know, both to rain and then not to rain mm -hmm. at the appropriate time. So I don't think it's unreasonable that, um, as you can certainly see in Hesiod as well, people want order among other things. So I think to a certain extent the storm god doesn't represent just weather or whatever, but also order, the reestablishment of order. And everyone in every culture I've ever studied has an expectation that the universe is ordered at some level. Yeah. And if you could figure out what that order is, you could function in it better. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, I, th I hope our listeners take away from this is how different a relationship we modern Americans, Europeans, etc., have with the agricultural life cycle. Absolutely. Whereas for the ancients, the agricultural life cycle was a life cycle for themselves. Has to be. And that any problem, if invaders come into your fields and take your crops, if the rains don't come, if the rains come too hard, your economy is wrecked for that year and possibly years to come because you can't then save the seed for the following year. Exactly. So in many ways, these agricultural festivals and religious rituals and even myths that talk about agriculture are central to the lives of the people that are telling them, like uh, Demeter and Persephone, right? The whole exactly. idea of that. So, so I really appreciate that idea that the storm god represents really life and livelihood in some seminal way. Um, and Very I really appreciate so. that. That's, that's really a, a, a good read on, on what the storm god really represents. Not only rain, but order. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. It, certainly in the village that I live in, in central Anatolia, from excavate, very small village, mm -hmm. maybe 100 people, Every single uh, man in that village is a farmer. There's no other occupation. Everyone mm -hmm. is a farmer. And they, you know, they go out to their fields every day. And, and, and when the harvest comes of the wheat in July, if they work on my project you know, and digging for me, they don't come to work. And, and we all know they're go not going to. And they will, might work all night when the harvest comes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very serious business. Mm -hmm. um, and they wait all year for two or three days of harvest. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't happen when it needs to, then, as you say, everything falls apart, including having seed for the following year, et cetera. So they are still completely dependent on the weather. Is there anything that we have not talked about that you think we should talk about, or any last thoughts about Ilyanka or any other Hittite cultural aspect that you think is worth talking about? Just reminding us, as you began the program, with um, that the Anatolia is like the perfect place to study the intersection of the Western world, Greek especially, and ancient Near Eastern traditions. Um, and you can see it in things like orientalizing pottery, which clearly borrows from ancient Near Eastern motifs, or the big question of the extent to which 
narratives like Hesiod's Theogony depend on older ancient Near Eastern motifs to remind us that neither the ancient Near East nor the Greek world are as much fun if you study them in isolation, but they're probably more productive and more enjoyable if you study them together and recognize they're all part of the same general area, especially in the late Bronze Age. Well, that does it for another episode of the Greek Myth Files. As often, we've found more questions than we have answers, but that's the fun of working with the scarce and fragmentary cultures of the ancient world. Was the Greek Typhius, one of the last threats to Zeus's rule, modeled after the story of the Iluyanka, the serpent who defeated, even if briefly, the storm god of the Hittite world? Or is Typhius a Greek creation that just happens to resemble other serpentine monsters that threaten the world order? In any case, these stories reflect the anxieties of establishing rule, the threat to the order of the universe, and, at least in the Hittite stories, the importance of fertility in the agricultural cycle. Great thanks go to my guest on the show, Professor Greg McMahon, who gave us an in-depth look at the Hittites and the myth of the Iluyanka. We were only able to scratch the surface of Hittite mythical stories, but listeners may wish to get a copy of a book called, cleverly, Hittite Myths by the great Hittite scholar Harry Hoffner Jr. and learn about the other mythical stories of the Hittite world. We should also thank our voice actors, Julia Summer and A.J. O'Neill, as well as our capable sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia, who put it all together. Our theme music is Brooklyn Tea by the incredible saxophonist Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go by and listen to his music. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time. <laughs>